Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, DGens and DGenettes, to another episode of the Alfalfa Podcast. We are four radically moderate entrepreneurs and investors swimming in the messy gray ocean, serving up alpha in money, politics, and life. We are Nick Urbani, Eric Johansson, Stephen Cesaro, and I am Arman Asadi. All links at alfalfapod.com. Make sure to hit subscribe wherever you are listening or watching on YouTube and follow us on the socials. And most importantly, hop in our Discord to join the community for the after party and more alfalfa. Okay, welcome to the Alfalfa Podcast. I have 11% battery life. Let's get to it. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> we're missing Eric again this week. Happy honeymoon, Eric. All right, uh, Stephen, how are the markets doing? Uh, Nick, macro, data, algo. Guys, life is good. Everyone's happy. And we're all going to die. Bye. <laughs> um, good episode, guys. What do you think? That was brilliant. Thank you. Oh, where, are, where in the world are you, by the way? I am in Amsterdam. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, places. I am in Amsterdam. Wonderful. Beautiful place, autumn in Amsterdam. Um, yeah, I'm gonna be here like four or five days. Should be pretty okay. good. Okay. Yeah. Like had a nice, comfy, productive flight over. It was good over the pond. It was good. And what is nine thirty there? It is nine thirty, sir. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm in yerba mate mode over here, so I'm I in- wish you. Wish you Godspeed and no jet lag. I'm in sober October mode, so I'm okay. working with a Pepsi Max. Mm. Mm-hmm. Looks like the hotel size. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, well let's dive in. <laughs> um, okay. And if we do have to stop because of this battery issue, well, uh, you as a listener probably won't know because we'll just work it out in the editing. Uh, <laughs> but um, all right, let's do an alfalfa round. Actually, do we Let's have any? Um, here. We have any announcements, Stephen? Do we have any announcements? Yeah. I, I don't have any announcements. Okay, I would like I would like people to follow uh, us Nick, on YouTube. Anything for the Is that an announcement? We'll kick off. No, I mean uh, check out the YouTube channel. I mean, I think we mentioned that kind of last episode, but certainly would love for well, you guys to check out. we still we don't have full. a million subs, so I'm gonna keep yeah. So keep all requesting. of you haven't because we don't have a million. All of you listeners have not <laughs> gone over and subscribed. We have a full full episode channel and a clips channel. Um, and yeah, try, trying to grow it, uh, trying to kick up the, um, video quality while we're remote, but certainly we'll do that in person. So, um, join over there and like any videos you watch. It's yeah. Help us out. Um, the clips are working. We just had another clip, uh, launch. We had the Iran clip that I mentioned last time just broke 300 and like 10,000 views. And then there's a clip of Steven doing a Rick and Morty impersonation on YouTube that has like 75,000 views. So, Wait, I did a Rick and Morty impersonation? You sure did, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Nothing but Steven's intellectual finest getting going viral on the internet. <laughs> totally. I'm glad, I'm glad people, yeah, people really like my depth. That's, that's good to hear. Oh, there was yeah. also one, um, one, one lady swooning over your, over your looks as well. So, yeah. Wouldn't be the uh, first. Wait, I, I, I'm still curious what the, what, what did I, what did I, what did I say? I, you have to go watch yourself. Yeah. Watch over yourself and over and over right. again. Pump those I'll numbers find up. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, All right. I'm going to kick off this uh, alpha alpha round. Uh, yeah, do it. Here. Um, I sold some puts last ne- last week. There was quite a bit of uh, volatility last week. Um, still ended somehow uh, positive, but it was quite the violent week for um, using the options hedge. I added on to the Cardano short 
And if it pumps a little more, probably add even more on there. I did set up some uh, ETH triggers in case we uh, puke um, overnight. So some in the 900s, some in the 800s, 700s. Who knows if we'll get down there, but uh, don't really mind when we do it, uh, if, if they'll hit. Um, but I think it's smart to have those in place. And then uh, my favorite part of the year, I have four favorite times of the year. Um, and one of them came just last week when the real estate distributions come in. And uh, it looks like um, they increased uh, 3.5% over last quarter. And I actually pulled up some like historical data. So I've been investing in apartments and storage units. I think the first investment was in 2014 and kind of been doing it since. And so I pulled up some data and looked at um, how have the cash flows increased year over year. So I kind of um, got rid of the lowest and the highest and took the median. And it's roughly around a median increase of 10% annually. So the cash flows from each apartment complex or storage unit investment uh, on average have increased uh, 10% annually. Some go down and up and there's refinances and sales and all that. But I try to get out all the noise in that data um, to try to understand, you know, if I didn't invest in anymore at all, how should I expect that passive income to grow over time? And so, yeah, just interesting data point. thought I'd share with everyone. And that's it for me this week. That was lovely. Thank you. I didn't do too, too much this week. I mean, I, I, I added, uh, I added Cardano officially to my, to my short basket, my little, my little bucket of coins that I'm hoping to short to zero. Uh, I think I got a decent entry on it. I'm still not massively short. I am a little concerned about the confluence of, uh, earnings coming in hotter than people might expect because I think there's a lot of reason to believe that'll happen in the short term, uh, elections and then, starting to weigh this uh, possibility that we could see like, you know, maybe a pretty big rally into year end be driven by all of these things. Plus uh, I imagine there's a lot of uh, funds who are massively short uh, and, and printing on the year. So I wonder how much like a uh, covering there's going to be into, into the end of the quarter so that people can uh, post a nice, nice fat profit and brag to their uh, investors. So uh, d- definitely still, medium term uh bearish definitely think we're going lower um i want i want a bigger short coin basket but but being a little careful there but yeah eight is eight is the next on my hit list i like it um i'm shorting being chronically online that journey continues um i'm also trading wolf game and made some profits there this week so one thing is wolf yeah, sold some wool at about eight cents, which was nice. Eight cents, nice. Yeah, yeah. It's back it's down to like an exit. seven and a half or something, but it's been nice. I also, um, well, I'm talking about two things at once, so I'll mention the wool first. Uh, there was word that the mini game that I mentioned last time, Alpha Game, is ending. Uh, the Shepherd has tweeted that Alpha Game will be ending, which to me signals that the actual full game launch will probably be happening um, in Q4. So I imagine they would have kept that game rolling, the the mini game, if the Wolf game full version was not going to be launching um, and came up with another distraction. But it looks like it's going to be launching, so it could be a pretty pretty woolly uh, Q4 here. And um, 
yeah, I am basically uh, peeling off the wool that I have and also buying um, and uh, continuing to peel off profits as I can. And I have some assets that I mentioned that are currently stake that when this little mini game completes, I'll probably look to uh, look to sell um, kind of an almost DCA out fashion. And then as far as this chronically online thing, Man, I've been on a on a roll with that whole topic ever since we did that episode. I've just been continuing to spend time thinking and being intentional about how I use technology. I had a moment on the plane ride here where I realized, I'm like, remember the days, like most of us, and especially most of us listening, uh, grew up where the only way someone could get in touch with you was to call your house and leave a voicemail or, you know, your parents pick up the phone and go, you know, is Steven home? And then, yeah, you know, he comes to the phone and he takes his phone call and calls his friend Jimmy. And that's about it. And it, probably another day goes by until the next time he's contacted. We are literally, literally chronically online. And I remember when I read this article, which I'll include in the show notes, it's like the ultimate guide to taking control of your iPhone, which I dropped in the Discord. And one of the recommendations, the very first recommendation he has is turn off your notifications, everything except calendar. Um and I think there was one other, but just like basically everything except your calendar. And I was like terrified by the, by the idea. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Like even the, and then he says, remove the badges on every single app. I'm like, no badges. How will I know if there's no notification? Well, at least I need a badge so that I know to go open it. And then I had that moment where I was like, wait a second, everything's going to be okay. Like it's going to be okay. Let me try this. And that showed me how just absolutely addicted we are and how connected we are to the level where we feel that it's necessary, but it's obviously completely not. And so taking control has been my theme lately and it feels fucking amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. Congrats. Um, actually, I think we've mentioned this topic a few times on the podcast and, uh, one of our listeners, uh, him or her and I have been uh, chatting back and forth on, uh, on Twitter about it and just kind of talking about the benefits of going full do not disturb mode. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I'll ever go back. So, um, can't wait to hear after a couple of weeks, how things feel. Yeah. Check out that article though, Nick, there are some cool hacks in there, like some really good alpha. Um, right. in addition yeah. to just my like, problem, my problem things- with the article personally is that my issue, uh, to f- build on our previous episode, if you guys haven't heard that episode, by the way, go listen to it, which, what would, what, do you remember the number or title? We did no, an episode a few weeks back about how I am just a, a absolute uh, dopamine addict, basically. Um, I think we need to figure out how to solve my issues on the laptop. I, I feel like I've actually conquered my phone pretty well from productivity perspective. I nuked most all of my notifications a long time ago. It's the main reason you guys get uh, really upset with me that I like miss messages constantly. It's because like I just, I just have basically blocked them all out. But it's like when I'm on my laptop doing work... Um, perhaps in the process of starting a new business or something, uh, then I am, uh, you know, constantly under this like deluge of a uh, stimuli and I'm, 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 I'm losing focus, but that was, that was, that was my attempt at a transition, but uh, I don't that know how segue well that was went. wonderful. That was wonderful. <laughs> um, perhaps a little we're clunky. Episode, yeah, <laughs> episode, I, I like it. Too. I like it all. I'll take the bait. Uh, dude, you know, <laughs> effort effort counts in this world. Uh, episode 62, how to unplug and de-stress in a chronically mm. online world. And yes, Stephen, let's transition to talking about 
being online and making money online. How about that? Yes. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. So in, in, a, Nick, in a non in a non trader sense, I should mm-hmm. add. I'm going to change it up a little bit today. Yeah, this is going to be very different. I'm very excited for this. A little bit of context, you know, um, the three of us here are entrepreneurs. We've all built businesses um, across a variety of different industries, um, everything from e-commerce, information products, software and SaaS, uh, mobile apps. Um, God, what else What else have we done? Um, Nick, you've been, been in a few different spaces yourself. I've done courses. Yep. Yeah, ad tech. Um, what we are going to do today... And if, Nick, if you have a better way you want to introduce this, but you know, feel free to pivot. But what we're going to do today is essentially give you an eight-figure business idea. And the idea here is that we're going to specifically give you a business plan, walk you through how we would start it to get to eight figures from zero to eight figures, but also make it so that you can apply this to any business in any industry not specifically to the one we're going to give you. So we're going to use it as a muse, as an example, to illustrate the various points of business and entrepreneurship, but they will be applicable to if you want to start a Web3 business, um, if you want to do a consulting service style business, it doesn't matter. The idea here is to be able to apply that to whatever business it is. On top of that, I will say, I do hope one of you takes this and runs with it and keeps us posted on the journey. And um, I think one of you will. I have a very good feeling about that. And uh, this is a magical idea. And the reason it's such a magical idea is because it lives in Nick's notebook. And Nick's notebook is full of multi-million dollar ideas. And I would know. Maybe we can talk about that later. But um, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, this, yeah, I got it, like this a... would be a good tripwire, actually. <laughs> We're going to talk about tripwires in the startup plan. <laughs> I, ha- and I have an Asana project. And I think I've been building it for years and it's just full of business ideas. I mean, uh, you hear them all the time, you know, as talking through friends and other entrepreneurs or, you know, and it was my way of kind of not getting shiny object syndrome and sticking to the business I was currently working on. And I would just dump these into the idea back backlog. And I realized I'm never going to get to the majority of these, but often hand them, uh, you know, the ideas to friends who are looking to start a business or if I get a little bored uh, or, you know, want to start something up. And some of these ideas were, were perfect for this episode. So what, what we're not going to do is what you typically see on, I, I guess, YouTube. And it's like, you know, here's eight passive income ideas uh, to make money online. Um, and th- those are mostly a joke. I actually looked up one of the uh, passive income <laughs> videos on YouTube. It had over 10 million views. Here are some of the passive income ideas I've heard. Start a YouTube channel, start a podcast, oh, be an passive, affiliate yeah. marketer. Jesus, oh, also we, we, very we, passive, yeah. Dude, <laughs> podcasts <laughs> could not be more passive. <laughs> yeah. Sell a digital product, sell a course, build a membership community, automate a business, build an app or a website. And here's my favorite one, royalty income from a book. <laughs> I'm like, well, you have to write the book. Like, Oh my God. Fucking? That's yeah. one of the hardest. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we we think most of those are garbage and we just thought it fun to toss around an idea, kind of walk through the process of de-risking a business uh, from from start to finish and and scaling it up. So this idea, uh, somewhat related to our our bidet uh, uh, focus in in previous episodes, um, this is a product that will replace your toilet paper. 
uh, a lot of us have used uh, baby wipes in addition to your toilet paper when you're sitting on the commode. And so Not this me. one is baby wipes specifically in the format that could replace your toilet paper. So imagine a roll of baby wipes that you use and you put into your toilet paper holder and you use them just like you would toilet paper, except they have the magically clean feeling of baby wipes as you pull them out of the holder. So we're going to talk about that business and uh, just shoot some ideas around, you know, during the ideating process, I think that's where we're going to start is what, what do you need to think about um, when you're kind of coming up with an idea and what should, you know, what should be your plan of attack from the ideation uh, standpoint? Most people spend so fucking long on that ideation phase. There's two things. There's, there's two phases that people spend so much goddamn time on. And it's unfortunately just a common syndrome of being a rookie at entrepreneurship. It's spending way too much time on the idea and thinking that you're supposed to protect the idea and not tell anybody about it. We'll talk about that. It's such a ridiculous idea. And the second part is an overemphasis on legal protections, documentation, operating agreements, copyrights and trademarks. None of that shit matters. And what really matters is identifying an opportunity, talking to real human beings, testing it in the marketplace, testing the demand and seeing if there's actually uh, something that you can create that is going to generate enough cash flow. They're large enough market to be able to serve and a, and, a, and a painful enough problem in most cases. And this this idea, the reason I really like this idea, not only is it really novel and unique and no one is really doing it um, that, that we're aware of at scale, so it has that novelty aspect. It has like an inherent um, virality sort of integrated into it where it will sort of market itself. It's like the did you know product. But beyond that, it's an industry um, that's easy to serve and that is obviously enormous and talking to people, you, you know, you, you can quickly identify that that's something that they wish they had in their homes. And it's just one of those, I wish, why don't I have this type products? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I also say that mo I think you have to realize in the ideation phase that most, um, ideas have already been thought of and done in some format, maybe not in the exact format of the idea you're thinking of. For example, I did actually find a dead company that tried to do this. They, they launched a Kickstarter. It was called Hyge, H-Y-G-E. And they, um, looks like they had some issues. COVID threw them for Iraq. They, they tried to do the manufacturing themselves, I guess. And, and it doesn't seem like they're, they may still be operating, but they're certainly not selling this product. So I think a good place to start is like, not necessarily be a little humble in that your idea is not the original one. Try to find out and seek all those um, either existing ones or, or past ones, whether they're the exact idea or substitute products of that idea and get on the phone. You know, I would typically get on the phone and see if I can connect with them and see if, you know, try to bring it up as maybe a recruiting call, but really try to f figure out why did it fail? What happened? what they learn? And I think you find that most people are often uh, willing to talk about it once you can get them on, on the phone. So I don't know. That's that's one place I'd start in the market research phase of the ideation and kind of validation. Um, can, can I ask you something yeah. uh, related to this? So I feel like there's like two kind of approaches people use. One is sort of like the uh, Peter Thiel uh, zero to one thing where you are creating something that is just so transformative that it's just like just bringing the whole market into a different place that didn't even exist before. And then there's what 
I did all the time and what I, I kind of think is the better play for most people, which is to just simply take something that exists and is proven to exist and just just like iterate on it. It's very, very you know, zero to zero to point one or something. I don't know. Um, so how, how do you feel about this product and that um, like normally when I would be like, oh, this is kind of a good idea. And I went out to research it and there was nothing there. Like some people are like, oh, this is great. There's no competition, right? But my thing is like, oh no, like this doesn't exist because the market, generally speaking, is pretty efficient, and right. it doesn't exist because this is just a bad idea and there's no demand for it. Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up. Like anytime you're ideating, and and I guess this is a lot of takes into account your personal situation. Do you have the the runway, the the personal risk tolerance to start a zero to one idea that may have a low probability of success, but a very large financial impact in the future? Like say starting another Twitter or a Twitter like company. Um, but then on the other end of that spectrum, there are lots of companies, lots of industries, sometimes not nation or global co- global companies, even local or regional companies that people can start that have a high probability of success with people making hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in net, net profit. Um, for example, I would say um, the service industry, you know, like from... Uh, you know, power washing homes to fixing air conditions to fencing companies. Those are examples where there's lots of people who have a high probability of success. They may not make, you know, uh, $50, 100000000 million, but they certainly um, can make more than average um, income. As far as this idea goes, yeah, I think uh, a little bit of it was a little poetic, you know, uh, changes to the idea. We want to have uh, an idea that's fun to play with. Um, but I think I've mentioned this before. I always think of like R&D or maybe I mentioned the Discord. R&D is a rip off and duplicate. And, uh, you know, (laughs) even when looking at e-commerce products, the first thing we look at is like, where's the search volume for and who's already buying ads at scale for a product and then kind of going to those same factories that they're getting their uh, manufacturing done from and then iterating off it just slightly, just just like you said, zero to point one. Um, and I think that's typically a good place to start if you're looking for a, a new idea. Um, so yeah, I'd say, Stephen, that's generally true. And I think uh, people have to kind of decide for themselves where their risk tolerance is, where their skills are. Um, but certainly don't knock off those, um, I think uh, Nick Huber on Twitter calls them sweaty startups, those service-based businesses, you know, where people are still using fax machines and paper and pens to, to provide quotes um, to kind of, you know, maybe digitize and and uh, kind of provide your own innovation on some of those businesses. Steven raises a really good point just to add I think if the idea is so novel um it's very that that you're you think that it's gold just because it's so novel and unique you definitely need to validate the demand behind it because oftentimes we get caught up in our own belief system around like this is just so much better it's a zero to one play but i look at the i look at this you know toilet paper wipes on a roll as like a like an iteration right i look at the business i did in e-commerce which was a a planner combined with an app as an iteration it was like every planner was cookie cutter i was like i'm gonna make a personalized planner it was an iteration and then i'm gonna combine it with technology so i think iterating on what already works and then selling it to that existing market and being able to communicate the pain of the product that they currently use is the way to really um, capture some market 
market share. But sometimes it can be that you're caught up in your own story. And that's why you can't protect your idea. This whole I, this this whole thing that exists with rookie entrepreneurs is that they think they can't tell anybody about it. Oh, the thing that drives me the most crazy is they say, yeah, um, I'd love to tell you, you know, I, I, you know, about it, but can you sign an NDA first? Shut up. No, no one's going <laughs> to sign an NDA, especially not an investor. If you tell an investor to sign an NDA, they will just walk away. They'll know that you're not ready for prime time. So you got to share your idea. You got to talk to people. You got to get support. You got to get allies and you got to get real customers talking to you, ready to send you money. In fact, take the money. You got to take the pre-orders. We'll get to that. That's one of the, the launch um, processes that I think is most effective. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So that's great. I, I want to move on to two other ideas, quick, quick ideas when, when ideating a product and kind of evaluating it for your own personal situation. Um, one is the cash conversion cycle. And then two is how is the supply chain structured? Um, and so I'll quickly talk on the cash conversion cycle. Um, just understanding at the very basics of your business, when does cash come in and when does cash go out? Not when you book revenue and not when you get invoiced, but when cash comes in and when cash goes out. Ideally, you'd like to make the money from your business before you have to actually spend it. Um, and so those are businesses that exist. I've seen them exist in a lot in um, ad tech and, and online advertising. Um, but uh, I think understanding that will inform your ability to uh, or your, your necessity to fundraise. And if this is something that you can start off um, with yourself, with your own capital, if you're going to need... Um, uh, financing, or if you can negotiate from the beginning with your partners, suppliers, whatever it is, to optimize that cash flow from uh, cash flow cycle from the start. Um, and as we'll talk about, getting the cash flow positive is typically not the uh, number one goal, but it, but it should be. So understanding that cash flow cycle. So for, I think for this business, um, we can optimize it, like Armand just said, about accepting some pre orders, and we'll talk about that to bring some cash in before we have to. Uh, build out manufacturing and buy inventory. And a lot of what we'll talk about is trying to push that uh, part when cash goes out for manufacturing and inventory um, after we try to de-risk a lot of issues of the, of this business model. Next is what I mentioned about the supply chain. Uh, what I like to use is an old school framework called Porter's Five Forces. It just looks at four competitive, five competitive forces and allows you to understand the, the value chain better. So there's obviously the typical competitiveness, uh, which is the, the rivalry, rivalry around existing competitors. So we know that one product uh, existed. It's no longer around there. So I don't think that's too great. There's certainly the threat of substitutes, which is toilet paper. So that, I think that's the highest. The, the next is the threat of new entrants. If we're successful, will new people come on board? And I think the next two forces will inform if there's a threat of new, new, new entrants. And that is the bargaining power of suppliers and the bargaining power of buyers. So your suppliers in this case will be uh, your manufacturing if you don't do it yourself. And the bargaining power of buyers could be, in this case, uh, direct consumers, and then uh, secondarily, uh, potential potential retailers. So, you know, this can be a one-hour exercise, just outlining who those are, who has the bargaining power, who has the leverage, who has the negotiating power in these relationships, um, and also understanding how many of them are there. If there's only one manufacturer that could develop a product like this, your bargaining power is going to be low. Um, and uh, if there's several of them, then your bargaining power is going to be very high. Like Steven said, if it's a product that already exists, the market is accepted, you might have 10, 12 manufacturers or, 
or suppliers of this product, which would give you um, quite a bit of bargaining advantage. So I think those two things are important um, during the ideation process, the cash flow conversion cycle, and then, um, you know, how your supply chain uh, and competitive forces work. Yeah, I think that the cash conversion, um, cash flow efficiency, I've even called it, is probably the most important thing in this type of business. It, it is what will make or break you. I have most people overlook it. They wait too long to focus on it. And ultimately it cripples them, their lack of focus on it. And I guess my um, question for you guys is, especially in a, a physical product e-commerce business, what are the most important levers to focus on up front? So say beyond pre-orders, you're in business, everything's flowing. How can we actually get this business to generate revenue, bring dollars in before we have to pay dollars out? Because e-commerce is one of the most challenging in this regard. I mean, I I would always think about the distribution channels you're going to use, right? Like if you have a product that you think can be successful on Amazon, for example, then you can sell and manufacture a product that has a much lower um, margin built into it versus if you have a product that people aren't really searching for, but they, 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 they know they need it when they see it. Something like Amazon won't be good for you in the beginning. You'll need to use like some sort of direct response advertising. You'll have to put the product in front of people and explain it to them. But if you do that, your your customer acquisition cost is going to be way higher, right? Like if you have to run like Facebook ads to get somebody to buy the product as opposed to there's already some search volume for it on Amazon and you're piggybacking that. Um, when you need to pay that advertising cost, like you need a much higher margin, right? So I would definitely be starting with like a, a product idea, right? But I would immediately be going to, okay, like, well, where could this product be uh, be distributed? Where could I find customers to buy it? And the nature of that channel is going to like directly translate for me into the viability of that product because there, there just are some products that won't work on Facebook ads, but will work totally fine. Uh, and Amazon, there's some products that may work fine um, in, in person, you know, distribution, um, but they won't work like direct to consumer online, uh, so on and so forth. So I don't yeah. know if you guys have any thoughts and, on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll add on to that. And that w what you'd like to find before you spend a lot of money is will it work in those channels? And so yeah. I, I've talked about this in the Discord, the idea of, of dry testing. And I've actually done this for a business that we ended up starting and it's still going. And what we did was we developed the website we had a designer mock up the product. We uh, integrated uh, payment processing and we started buying ads to it before the product existed. I didn't even know how to make the product we were selling. And we started buying ads and we took real orders and we did not have the product yet. But what we learned was how much does it cost to acquire a customer? How many units per order will they add? What was the average order value? What price point can we actually convert this product into sales with and a whole bunch of other data. But those were the most important things we were trying to learn and trying to understand the viability. Now, of course, after we got all those orders, we emailed all the customers and said, hey, uh, this was a test. Um, you know, this product will be coming out in X number of months. Um, you know, you can get a refund. If we don't hear from you in a week, we're going to refund you anyway. 
So it, it may seem like an expensive test, but if we would have done all the manufacturing, just the time to spend how to manufacture, sourcing it all um, before we had done this, and it didn't turn out okay, we would have been quite in the hole time-wise and, and money-wise. So oh, I think that dry testing cheap, is dude. an important test. That's the cheapest yeah, path forward. It's yeah, a brilliant if I was going to restart this again, um, you know, I've seen people um, do uh, crowdfunding as a way to kind of dry test and get a feel. Like if people are willing to to submit money that way, that's a good test. I think I would kind of start off buying a few search ads for brand names that are direct competitors or brand names that are of uh, substitute products. So let's say uh, toilet paper brand name. You know, that is one of the highest search intents you could see. Someone is specifically looking for that. And like the reason they're using a brand term is because they want to buy it. And so if you can do a good job of kind of redirecting their intention from buying that um, competing product to yours at an effective rate, um, that's a good sign that you're on to the right track. So this involves setting up some ads, setting up a website, again, taking actual payments and measuring that, that data. And so that's where I would start again to see if if this toilet if this uh, baby wipe on a roll idea is going to work. Is I'd buy some ads targeting Charmin and specific uh, you know high intent keywords and see if I can uh, redirect them and how much it costs. And those you know on the whole are probably going to be some of your cheapest ways to acquire users. So if it's not profitable from the start, you may have some hesitations if this thing's got 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 legs or not. And if it is profitable. You now know and have the terms to be able to negotiate and create the product specifically exactly the way you need it to be priced in order to have the gross margin you need to achieve. You know, I, I always say like a standard minimum gross margin that you need for a physical product, you know, is 60%. So it costs you $10 to make, you better make $6 because there are so many other expenses beyond that, <laughs> that that you're not factoring in, especially in e-commerce. But beyond that, the cost to acquire, now you know, let's just keep the number simple, you can spend up to $6 to acquire that customer as well. And if you do the testing that Nick just talked about, you can get really specific about that. And then when you go to launch, for me, I don't I don't think crowdfunding is the best way to do that dry testing. I think the first way you described is better. Cool. You take that data and then you go and you actually go and do the crowdfunding as a mechanism to, 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 to do the pre-orders for the actual product so that then you don't have to front the capital for the manufacturing. That's the win about crowdfunding. And then it launches you into a, a, a full-blown business. So Yeah, and so fr from this stage forward, I, I've done something even like halfway between dry testing. So let's say the dry test goes well. We're interested in, in going out. And if you're going to do manufacturing on yourself, it's still very expensive. Minimum order quantities, custom printing, custom labeling, it's, it's, it's expensive and, and tough and requires a large amount of money. So what I've done to go to the next phase is actually continue to build out the marketing engine, build out some of the ads and try to drive customers. But I would go buy competing products that were the exact same product, just a different brand at wholesale. And even though I paid more for them, Again, it allowed me to get to that next stage of de-risking the product even more, the de-risking the marketing of the product even more um, without having to make a large financial purchase um, of, of inventory. So you're trying to get it to the, the highest point of confidence before you have to make those, those uh, larger, larger purchases. And you know, we did talk about retailers. I think it's even worth, you know, this is from my, my experience of 
of kind of doing it backwards, but you know, I would certainly even make a full blown presentation and try to get a hold of of buyers inside of retailers, um, smaller retailers to start, get some feedback, understand what are going to be the blockers for you to actually potentially get in the store for for this product. It's it's probably got to you know fit within their certain shelf design, their certain uh, category design of of. It's also got to work really well with how they ship and handle products and and their back you know warehouse. Um, and then it's also got to provide them, you know, is it going to bring users into the store? Is it going to have a, a good dollar per square foot, you know, in, in their, on their shelves? And so understanding that from the start is certainly a good way. And those will primarily be qualitative notes that you'll have. But I think understanding that before you make some final product decisions can also save you quite a lot of um, headache. And it may even cause you to just say, we're going to scrap this idea, uh, depending on, on, the, on the data you get back. So, so your first running some sort of online test, right? In the, the, wh- where you think your customers are and where they're sort of going to be mm-hmm. buying the product. By the way, what, what do you feel like is the fastest way to get up like the infrastructure for that test, like processing website, the whole nine yards, if somebody doesn't have like a whole dev team behind them? Yeah. Like, how would so you do click it? funnels? I mean, what do you do? Yeah. Guys cl- do? Click, click funnels, click funnels is, is, is yeah. good. Um, I, I'd say a Shopify store. Using yeah. a very basic template is probably a, a great way to start. You can get started really cheaply. Use some of the existing templates. Um, you'll have to do a lot of work to filling in a lot of the content, a lot of the imagery. I think we use 99designs to get a designer to, to design a fake product, like a, a mock-up of a product mm-hmm. um, and the packaging um, so that we could dry test this thing. Um, so yeah, I would say those, those set of tools are pr- pretty... Um, quick and easy to, okay, to get cool. up and going. So, so you test like the, the theory of the product first, the positioning, how much it costs to get a customer. Will they buy the product in theory? And then if the answer to that is yes, and you sort of have an idea of the types of margins you need, your customer acquisition cost, it sounds like then you are going to wherever it is that you need to produce that product and try to do a little digging into, okay, well, wh- what actually does this cost to produce? And how do I right. how do I get to this stage like as quickly as possible? Yeah, and and just to be concrete to this example, some of the questions I have for this business is how important is it that consumers that this is septic tank safe and sewer safe, the the flushable wipes? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to see how high I can push that average order value because let's be honest, like toilet paper is not a very high average order value um, product, but can we get their average order value close to hundred bucks? Because the more they spend on that order, the more you can spend. Uh, on acquiring a customer, that initial customer. Um, I would also say That suspect- is a challenge I see with this that might require some like uh, related products, some supplementary products in oh, order upsells. to really- Yeah, upsells, baby. Upsells are very important. Yeah, you need to have some cross-sells and upsells. Uh, the good thing about this product is it's a consumable product. And so my guess is that you're going to lose money on acquiring that customer on the first purchase. But if the product's good, if you can get a really high opt-in rate on the subscription, you can really use email and SMS to, to remarket to those customers. Um, uh, you know, anything you can use in the box to encourage a second purchase, you know, measuring that repeat purchase rate and that lifetime value is going to be the key to success. So back to the cash conversion cycle, you might have to realize early on that we're going to go negative in acquiring customers. But we're going to be positive, maybe in month two, three, four, or five, and figuring that out as soon as possible is important. Um, and realize that if your company's doing well, if you're growing fast, you're actually going to be your cash balance in your bank account is going to be going down because you're going to be aggressively acquiring users, going negative on that first purchase. And if you keep growing, that will never stop, and you will only kind of become 
cash flow positive once you level off the aggressive user acquisition and let that LTV of those users from those original cohorts um, kind of kind of flow in. Mm. So I think it's really important to understand that. And this might be the case in, in this business. I just got a fucking yeah. fun idea. This is the type of got? product where you could have a really great quiz. You could have a sick quiz funnel with this. So <laughs> you could first like help them identify the problem through the quiz, but then the quiz could also serve as a funnel to set them up on the subscription at the cadence necessary upfront. How many people in your family? How often are you going poo poo? You know, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> yeah. How many kids? rooms in your house? How yeah. many rooms? How many places do you need to place this in? You know, we're going to send you a free sample, assuming everything goes great. You know, how many rooms does this need to go in? Blah, blah, blah. That's how you get that average order value up. And then you just set them up on like a once every two week, once every month delivery. This business can be very profitable as a subscription business. If you're thinking of this business as like, I just have to sell, you know, a, a, pa a three pack of these rolls and then let people try and let the rest kind of happen. It's not going to happen. You got to get people right. locked in and they have to be part of your ecosystem and they have to be on repeat purchases for this to be successful. And I want to put what Nick said in a different way, just for someone that maybe has never thought about that concept or doesn't have that business background. What Nick is ultimately saying here is it is okay to lose money up front. And the reason it's okay to lose money up front is if that you can be certain that in three months you're going to make more money than you spent to acquire that customer, then you're profitable, but you're profitable on a longer time scale. And the longer that person stays on subscription, the, the higher their lifetime value goes, their LTV goes, and those are the indicators of a successful business. Monthly recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue, and getting those numbers driving up while maintaining a certain level of profitability. Now, of course, you want that number to be as low as possible. You want to be able to, to cover your cost as quickly as possible. But there is something counterintuitive here. The more you can spend to acquire a customer, the better in many ways, because then you are out competing everyone else who might come after you. And this is the first time I heard this was like, I don't know, eight years ago, and it blew my mind. I was like, wait a second, the person that spends the most to acquire the customer wins. And I thought it was just like some cliche, you know, kind of like internet marketing thing, but it's not. It, you're, you're, you're acquiring ad space by doing that. No one can reach that customer and place that ad in front of them because you're outspending them. And if you can outspend them and yet still make money on the back end, you completely dominate. So sorry for the yeah. pivot, but no, no, that, that's a good point. It's important for people to realize that, that online advertising is an auction based environment. And so the people who win that auction for that ad space are the people who are willing to, to, to pay the most. So if you can organize the economics, get your order value up, your lifetime value up, you're able to spend more to acquire that customer and that's how you win. Um, you know, a lot of businesses, you know, like Dollar Shave Club, you know, D2C companies like that, they took on investor money and just knew they were going to lose a lot of money. Um, but they were able to show that the life expectancy of a customer was, was years, not even months, years. And um, able to prove that, that this was building enterprise value while they were losing cash. So... Um, you know, depends on the path, the, the trajectory that you're trying to go and how big the market is for the product you're starting. But it is important to know you're in an auction-based environment primarily. Yeah. Okay. Can I bring you guys back a little bit? Like, like please can do. We go back to the, uh, okay. I, we, I, I want to talk about the, I'm so excited about making money in this now. 
<laughs> take us back. Take us back, Steve. So, yeah. So before we can run all these ads and do these, you know, fancy customer acquisition strategies where we outspend everybody, right? We, we, we've established that the, the, the idea is good, and but now we're trying to get the product in hand. And I think getting the product in hand, if you're doing like a physical good, is it's really, really important because as you know, Nick, there's this sort of iterative process where you have to go back and forth and you're sourcing manufacturers, you're, you're, you're building things. Maybe they're stuff that you think works in theory, but in practice, you get it in your hands and it does so this whole, whole process that happens. Um, at that point too, you can also get it into the hands of your customers in, in person, which I think is something that like us, uh, internet people forget about sometimes right. or just like ads, 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 ads. But in reality, like, uh, instead of like going into deficit acquiring customers with ads, like this particular product, like you might say, ah, my customer is somebody who's willing to pay like two X for toilet paper. Maybe they're like a yuppie type person who cares about these. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to my local farmer's market and like set up a booth and, 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 and shill some, some of this new toilet paper, right? That wouldn't be a very glamorous way to start the business, but you know, you could sort of trade your own time and sweat equity instead of like dumping thousands of dollars that you maybe don't have into to customer acquisition. Um, yeah. But, but going back to the, the product part of it, like how do you, do you, do you approach this? Do you first see like if there's somebody in China or some factory? So like often, like I've found that there are manufacturers who are already making the thing that I'm thinking about or something that's at least adjacent to it. And it might, might not have been picked up by the market yet, you know, so you may already find that there's somebody who's making something that's close to what you need and then you can kind of go to them and tweak it. But, but how would you approach this? Yeah. So, um, I'll tell you, most people will start off and going to Alibaba and reaching out to, to factories and what turn, ends up happening is they're not really reaching out to factories they're reaching out to brokers. They're going to take a rip and, and, and yeah. not really work it out, especially if your product doesn't exist in the form factor that you want it. So instead of going to factories in China and trying to contact them directly, what I would rather do, and this is what I have done is you can hire like an MBA level person who has experience working in factories in China, who has experience um, actually manufacturing and sourcing products for around $1,000 to $1,500 a month. And what I would do is I would, you know, have mock-ups done of the product, you know, kind of 3D mock-ups. I'd hire that person, um, maybe indefinitely, but at least for a few months and have them fly, train, drive around to every factory. And typically in China, you you see that certain regions specialize in certain types of manufacturing. So they could probably go to a region, talk to seven or eight manufacturers that they may even know if you find the right person um, and negotiate in Mandarin, negotiate in Yuan, and you'll have much better success if you have someone locally on the ground doing the research doing the the negotiation on your behalf um, from you know really trying to get that uh, minimum order quantity down from the start. If there's a mold cost, like a, a custom thing you need to develop um, to get that down as, as much as possible. And so that's the way I would approach it. I would hire someone on the ground. Uh, and again, you can find very capable people there who may not speak really good English, but on WeChat can at least talk and type English very well and write English very well enough to where you can you can get the job done and save yourselves a lot of headache um, trying to find a, a manufacturer you know by yourself and um, from my personal experience 
even professional sourcing companies do not get the best deal, get run around um, if if they're trying to negotiate with factors in China. It certainly helps to have they someone definitely don't. who speaks the language. Yeah, yeah. Plus, you're paying them so, 10% or so on top. So you're you're losing there instead of just taking the hard cost of hiring that person. I love that hack. Dude, I had to go to China to figure this shit out. I literally had to go. <laughs> I was like, I got to see this for myself. Like, one, I was like, I want to go to China. Let's go see what this place is all about. But... Um, yeah, it's a shit show. You got to have uh, feet on the ground. And if you go through a sourcing company, well, all they're doing is doing what Nick just said. They still are doing the same thing where they would have somebody locally there of Ch- you know, Chinese, like speaks Mandarin, goes to the factories, has the relationships. And that takes a lot of work because some factories specialize in some things and others go a completely different direction. And that local connection will allow you to get terms that will make or break your business. That minimum order quantity is so important up front and so challenging, especially if you have multiple SKUs of any kind. So yeah, I right. think that's a and, that's a really important step. And I would say this certainly helps if you go into production, you want that same person you hired to um, show up at the factory during production, pulling products off the line, doing QA on your behalf, not on the factory's behalf, and making sure that when it shows up, you don't have a you know, container full of bricks, uh, show up at your distribution center. If that's the case. Now that said, most people maybe are not ready for that step. I especially think unless you have that, or you can source that network, that person, great, do it up front, but there's nothing wrong with going through a sourcing partner, you know, using, using some sort of sourcing management company. Um, both of Nick and I have, we even used the same person at one point. And, um, there are some that I didn't like, and there are some that I loved, um, so it's just like any other hire. You got to do your due diligence. It, in this is, instance, I would call that fail company and I bet you they have some inventory left over. Yes. And again, it allows you to get to that next phase of like, hmm, how long, you know, will repeat customers come back? Maybe even see if they're willing to make it for you. Um, they probably still have the equipment and whatnot and see if there's some negotiation there to be had. Maybe not. Maybe it's still cheaper in the end to kind of go Start to the lowest over. cost, most efficient source of, of product. Um, Steven, did that kind of answer the, the question that you had? Yes, I'm satisfied. Thank you. He's satisfied. Okay. Manufacturing is big. I want to really quickly, just in three seconds, hit the legal thing that most people okay. spend so much time on. Once you're ready, you know you want to go in business. This comes after all these steps. You're ready to roll. You're going to accept your first dollars. At that point, create an entity. Create probably like, you know, talk to your accountant, talk to your CPA, create an LLC for most people. Um, if you have partners, you're going to need a simple operating agreement. That might take some time. Try not to spend money on the legal side of it. Try to find a template and write it yourself. Uh, I used to get intimidated by legal language and documents, thinking that only attorneys can go in and write those things. No, you can go in yourself. Just write it the way that makes sense to you in like common English language. Like it doesn't have to sound so legalese. Just put the terms that make sense to you and the people involved and agree to those terms. And then that's it. Open a bank account, mercury.com. I'm an investor. Absolutely love mercury.com. Um, business banking. Literally all you got to do is submit an EIN, your ID, done. They eliminate all the bullshit of like dinosaur ancient business banking. Uh, actually setting one up this week for Alfalfa. Wait, this is, this well. is Mercury? Yeah. Mercury is amazing. Really? Oh, yeah. Sales pitch. All of my, yeah, maybe we can get him as a sponsor. All of my uh, bank, business (laughs) bank accounts are there now. 
Um, I don't think they do. So stuff you just like ship them an EIN and they just open everything. There's no. It's great. They have a few business types of businesses they won't mess with, just like any other you know bank. They don't want to touch certain things. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, amazing company, amazing company. What's um, next in the legal? That I mean that that's that's it, right? Like um, yep. you don't need the trademark. You don't need you know. I mean, don't rip anybody off. Like make sure you're not. Uh, trademark infringing on somebody else, right? That's easy. Go to trademark. I'll, I'll violate that from time to time. I, I mean, I, I usually wait for the letter from their lawyer to CMG yeah. to to kind of move on. But uh, but yeah, you can uh, always as uh, you know say, I'm so as sorry. you know, Nick. I got one of those recently. You work, yeah, yeah you fucking work it out. You know, it's not a big deal. But I mean, if you want to be safe, like go to trademarkia, search the word. You know, make sure that there isn't. If you're starting a water bottle company, and it's called. Um, you know, lava, make sure there isn't a water bottle company called lava with a trademark. That's it. It has to be specific to that domain. As long as it's not, you're good to go. And you don't even need to file the trademark. It's just like you can even, you're just good to go. All right. What's next? What are we going to next? So I think, um, did we talk about this MVP piece? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I think yeah, it's just like capital. Talk about manufacturing. Now. You're going to need money, okay. right? And 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 there's a lot of paths to do this. For this product, I'm curious what you guys think. I think this would crush on crowdfunding. I I, I think that that would bring in the pre-orders and create the time needed to work on manufacturing, and would serve as invaluable marketing. But that's just one way. Um, you know, you're going to need some capital. So, you know, as Nick was saying earlier, bootstrapping a business as much as possible is great because you keep the leverage, you keep the equity. If you need to bring on um, capital in exchange for equity, well, you know, most people take a safe note um, or some sort of convertible debt. And they do a little bit of fundraising, maybe with friends and family, maybe with angel investors. That's one way to do it. Something like this, I don't imagine going to venture capitalists for. Um, and the other way is to raise debt where you don't have to exchange equity. But I don't know. I mean, like if you can get pre-orders and then you raise enough money to cover your costs and pay yourself something and get into business and hire a little help. I don't know. I think there's a lot yeah. of paths with the, with the money side of this. I- I think there. The only thing I'll add on this section is is the idea of when you when you're coming to fundraising, you want to have that user acquisition piece as figured out as possible. So if you did figure out that data and you come to an investor, a potential business partner that's going to put some capital in, and you say, "This is what I acquired that customer for. This was the average order value. This is you know," and, and show those unit economics and how it works, you're going to be in a much better place than if you're saying, "Here's my idea." And here's my marketing plan, and here's my business plan. If you can come with, with that data, you'll be in a much better place. Um, and hey, you might best way to find money might be to find a business partner who fills in one of those critical success factors, one of those critical skills that's going to need uh, this business to scale. Who's also willing to to put in some money uh, in addition to some sweat equity? So um, I don't know. That's my only input there on uh, fundraising. I yeah. think there's efficient I mean, ways to do it. Go ahead, Stephen. Yeah. I I feel like when I look at this particular idea, I think of a like kind of Facebook 
funny video or meme type campaign that is like a little comical and like grabs the user's attention, you know, kind of in a like, you know, squatty potty, poopery uh, type vibe. Maybe poopery is like the best example uh, of this. So if you can figure out a way to hack together a sort of like video ad, I think that is communicating like the problem and the product and doing it in this like kind of amusing way because i think i think the whole concept of toilet paper is kind of hilarious and 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 gross like we've we've talked about this uh in the past on this program and i just think if you put that in front of people in like an engaging way with like a really creative ad like it you will get a lot of traction and you could do a very minimalist sort of like landing page on the other end and just see what happens with those numbers. Yeah. Um, that, that's that's where my head goes on this. As we kind of transition to talking about distribution, I would say um, I would take a, a different role and maybe not trying to scale up on, on direct-to-consumer initially, um, but you know, this tactic will certainly drive D2C sales. But what I've, what I've learned in talking to, to different retailers is, sure, they want a brand that's successful, that's doing a large amount of revenue, that has a big marketing budget. But one way to hack your way and, and advance your way in these conversations to getting distribution via retail is they have a fascination with social media. They have a fascination with how many TikTok followers you have and how many Instagram followers you have and how many um, influencers are using and talking about your product. So I would say a, a good amount of uh, you know the marketing initiative should be kind of handing off the product to TikTok content creators. And it doesn't matter that they have large audiences or not. I wouldn't even go after the ones who have smaller audiences, but create great content. And, you know, uh, a lot of them will do it just for free product. Some will do it for a very minimal amount of 50 bucks to, to create a video um, and try to grow that way. And maybe you can hack your way to some retail distribution if you can show that, hey, this is trending on TikTok or Instagram and just make it feel to the retailer. Um, that if they put your product in stores, these same influencers will drive them in, in, into their, their doors. Um, and so I've found that's a shortcut to getting retail. So I would make that kind of an initial part of, uh, you know, some distribution marketing initiatives, especially since this is such a, a, a could be a very funny product to play with if you get them in those creators' hands. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very important point as well because creating a pure a DTC brand was quite a phenomenon over the last five years that was just explosive. But you can't rely purely on direct to consumer anymore. Um, that just isn't going to work, especially with a lot of the ad platform changes on Facebook and the the struggle to acquire users through you know cold paid ads. You've got to diversify with retail and Amazon. And that is just something that didn't used to be the case. That absolutely is now. I was talking to one of my, for my one of my friends, my former clients, as a company called Glamnetic. Glamnetic has a crazy story where they grew from zero to fifty million dollars in their first year, and this was all this was all D to C, and it was definitely a lot of paid traffic as well, but a lot of organic and influencer traffic. And they've had to pivot that. They've had to expand that. They've had to go to retail. And, and for those that don't know, it, it'll now come into your awareness. Glamnetic are these magnetic eyelashes that that women wear. And it just exploded mm. because she started creating good videos of showing how easy it was compared to like using eyelash glue. It was just 
eyeliner magnet boom it's on and just highlighting that and then getting influencers to do the videos sending them free product paying them and then they measured the conversion and they saw whoa we can spend so then they started paying influencers five thousand ten thousand twenty five thousand they've had all the like zoomer names promoting this stuff at this point all the all the i don't even know all the tiktokers all the really really famous ones are like partners with Glamnetic now. Why? Because they can afford to pay them that. And then when they did that, they were able to go to Sephora and say, look at us and got into Sephora for that reason and got into Ulta for that reason. So um, what Nick just mentioned is bang on, bruv. Yeah. And, uh, you know, setting up a well-oiled machine um, from the start will help you kind of make back a few pennies around those expensive, that expensive user acquisition. That's email, that's SMS, that's um, making sure the product's at least available on Amazon. When people go search there, you'll get another 10, 15% of sales from, from there. Um, making sure you have a kind of a well-oiled machine to capture where everyone uh, you know goes online and make sure you're recapturing those repeat purchases certainly helps. But yeah, I think that, for this product- What's that Amazon intelligence great. tool that we like? Um, um, Helium 10. Yeah, that's a good um, one. Um, especially if you're going to go with like a pure Amazon product and you know, going back to the original point Stephen was making, if it's just an iteration, it's a wide market. I remember looking at like laundry detergent being like, um, wow, this is a very interesting niche on Amazon that you could really dominate. You know, you can look and see like how crowded is the space? What's the average, you know, order value? How much money are each of these products making? And you figure out pretty quickly, like if you can be successful just on Amazon alone, um, but yeah. you got to have all of them, I think. I feel cool. like, I feel like Amazon could be a good place for this honestly because you just put your thing up there with all the other like and you could call it something like like triggering in the title like no smear toilet paper or something and then people are like oh ooh, smear yeah and then it's just like sitting there with the other stuff and they're like wait a minute and you can use ads and videos on there and you can kind of tell the story i mean there's obviously tremendous volume from people searching for normal toilet paper so i think you will have to spend money on advertising because nobody's going to be searching for your stuff at first which is kind of like the the caveat to it but I, I i could see it working as like the only thing there that's really standing out especially if you figured out a way to package it differently or just present it differently because it's all the same it's all like this stuff and like a circular roll and like you see this in a lot of areas where people just come out with like a, like a type of packaging that's like a pattern interrupt it just breaks your brain and how it just automatically thinks to the packaging in this particular niche or something and people go like oh and they just look at it like wow oh that that package is a circle instead of a square like that's so cool and unique for this this thing and you know so yeah but sometimes that that obviously can work against you and there's a way people a reason why people design stuff the the same in a particular niche yeah so i don't know if this is a crazy idea but it worked for me before and i've seen so many companies do this successfully especially for a product like this if it was me i would probably spend the majority of my capital time and creative energy creating the best fucking hero video imaginable and it, mm. for the product like this you have an opportunity for it to be funny that in and of itself could be the catalyst that makes this whole thing successful. If you have a badass, funny video with a lot of great actors in it, it doesn't have to be super high budget. This can be done, you know, with your own team or a few people in your life that you know. If you just model the videos that work, it doesn't have to be a hundred thousand dollar video. You know, it's like that's what a lot of people go these days. They go to these fancy agencies and spend fifty thousand dollars on a video. I would actually though, for this, I think it warrants it. I think that's a good 
it's a good investment of capital because this video can be used on the crowdfunding. It can be used on the landing page for the pre-orders. It can be used you know, as a YouTube ad. It can be used forever. I've seen multiple brands do this effectively and that's all they do. Again, look at my friend's company, um, Laundry Sauce, as an example. I believe he used a popular agency in San Diego called Rainmaker and they create these videos that are just like absolutely outstanding and funny and like just... You know, he already turned that into a multi-million dollar business in in, in less than a year, uh, just doing that with that one video. So, especially for DTC, DTC products like this, I, I would create an amazing, amazing video. Um, you you would uh, you would do this, I think, after you have like an MVP, right? You've 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 got some sort of MVP, and you're like, this works, people like it. It's not perfect, but I'm just going to send it now. Yeah, this is the we're ready to launch, and the video will be our entry into the public space after we've extracted mm-hmm. maximum value from a, a, a court, you know, a closed beta group. We, we've gotten our, you know, kind of like initial pre-orders in, we've gotten our manufacturing down. We're ready to go. We have the product fully prototyped, completely designed. People have used it. They love it. That's, that's that next step. It's like, okay, now we're ready to actually sell um, and market this thing. So I guess to work toward wrapping up, I mean, God, we could talk about this topic, obviously, as you can tell, guys, for like yeah. hours. <laughs> um, but I think to to kind of wrap this up, do we want to talk about scaling, Nick? Is that what's next? And then maybe just some some team and people stuff to close? Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you've done the first part of the business right and kind of figured out the unit economics and, and your cash conversion cycle, then hopefully, um, you know, it's just pouring more gasoline on the fire, ideally. And so you're starting from your highest intent traffic sources like Google search and kind of going to, to moving to less, uh, less high intent traffic sources like, say, Facebook or, or, or TikTok and trying to scale, uh, scale up uh, orders that way. Um, obviously, we talked about Amazon as a distribution channel will help. Um, and, you know, we could talk about scaling and, and the issues that you come across scaling for quite a bit. So if we're missing anything, if there's something that you want to explore further, if there's uh, holes in it, you disagree, um, hop in the discord, uh, into the money channel and let's chat about it more. And we can certainly fill in the blanks. Um, cause we could talk about scaling for, for quite a bit. Yeah, we could. Um, I think one thing on, on, um, sk- on kind of like expanding and scaling and then a quick comment on like soft skills. So I I had a few thoughts just for like upsells on this product. Like once you get going and you've really identified the problem and and you're, and you're sure you're serving it, there's so many ways to create like obvious, um, variations of this product. Like you could literally, I don't know, you could do scented, right? You could do, um, infused with like a partnership with like preparation H, (laughs) You know, I saw, I saw, I saw that in the aisle the other day where there were wipes because mentioning the wipes, but they were preparation H wipes, right. For people with like hemorrhoids and, but it's funny, right. And people need it. People need it. And so like, okay, I get to like kill two birds with one stone or three birds with one stone. Now, you know, I'm getting the wipe, I'm wiping my butt and I'm getting the preparation H up there. So it's like, there are so many different ways that you can begin to create and you don't want to go too skew heavy in e-commerce because having a fuck ton of SKUs can create a big headache on the on the inventory management side but you know what like you got to do what you got to do nick i know you went skew crazy and you just got to do it sometimes and it's Mm -hmm. part part of the game yeah 
I, on the upsells, you know, you and you may describe this when you're pitching investors, but you know, this idea is just a beachhead into the bathroom. And then once you're in the bathroom as a product, you may look around and say, what else is tangential to the business and what else can we own? Because there's certainly a lot of products you can sell in the bathroom and kind of go on from there, from the bath to the shower to the sink. Um, so anyway, uh, there's lots of ideas and upsells there. Yeah. And I mentioned this, but I, I really want to emphasize it for, for this idea, for any physical product. I still believe that crowdfunding, and it doesn't have to be on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, you could do it on your own. It could just be that video that I described with all the text to describe the product they're buying on a pre-order page that allows you to receive payment for the product in advance with a promise of delivery in the future to go and fund your manufacturing. I am so glad that I did that for my Evo Planner company. And without that, I would have had to front, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in capital. We raised over a million dollars on crowdfunding and that allowed me to fund fund the inventory, uh, um, scale the team, hire agencies to, to help support the business and the marketing and turn it into a real business after that. And it wouldn't have been possible without it. So I still think it's a, it's a fantastic path. And you can work with agencies as well. Um, I'd be happy to recommend the agency that I worked with called launch boom that basically manages <laughs> this for you. Yeah. That man, they're a San Diego, they're a San Diego company <laughs> that yeah, manages this for you. I don't know if they're still doing this and if that's still their, if that's still their focus, but there are these crowdfunding agencies that will manage the video creation, the creation of that page, the campaign itself, and all of the traffic and the pre-orders pushing those people and running all the Facebook ads to the campaign. So, um, again, there's so much we could discuss. Let's, let's move to the discord for the rest of it. Also, there's so much when it comes to entrepreneurship and business in the soft skills area, which I think is the hardest, honestly, this stuff is, 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 is just logical and there are frameworks and it's a science, but there's an art to business and the art is leadership, emotional intelligence, um, hiring, firing, knowing what to do with people because people are weird, man. People are weird and they're difficult to trust and they're difficult to motivate and they're difficult to understand. And, and it's difficult to create a culture people want to work, uh, 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 for. So those are the things as well that I think are not, you know, important to important to emphasize and not, not worth skipping along the way as well that we can discuss outside of this. Mm -hmm. I'll add just uh, when it comes to operating, you know, one thing I've used in almost every business is kind of like a weekly scorecard. And this is five to 15 metrics um, that um, if you were on a private island somewhere and you didn't have contact with your team or your business, but you got this scorecard once a week, the idea is that you should know exactly how your business is performing um, from this scorecard. And so typically we look at a scorecard once a week, we look over the key metrics, five to 10 of them. And you know, focus our business around those metrics and see if they're meeting the standards and then kind of work on priorities from there. So I find that operationally one of the like, um, m you know, smallest things to do, just recording those metrics and then kind of has maximum impact. Hell yeah. Very different episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> hopefully a lot of alfalfa and seriously, who will be the one? to start 
this new toilet paper company called the Alfalfa Butt Wipe. Um, no, you don't have to call it that. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 use a different title. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. But uh, no, seriously, this whether it's this idea, variation of it, or a completely different idea, I hope this was valuable for you guys. I mean, we love talking about business. We obviously in the money segments mostly talk about crypto and macro these days. So we thought it would be a, a nice little change. So let us know what you think, and let us know any questions, and we'll see you guys uh, in the next politics episode. Peace. Cheers. Bye. Adios.